Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's over there actually sitting in today. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know about think tanks. The thinkingest kind of tanks there are. Fish tanks, they don't think at all. Well, they barely think. They think, this water feels a little warm for me. <laughs> and then they think, what's water? What's being wet? And then that's about it. And then they're like, how about some of those tasty flakes? Yeah, give me some. And that's it. Think but tanks. Think tanks. There's a lot more thinking going on in these kind of tanks. More like stink tanks. It depends <laughs> on your opinion. And uh, that's everybody's opinion. So, yes, I guess they are more like stink tanks these days. <laughs> this is one of those weird ones where I, for 47 years, I've just had, sort of had this. I never dug in on what a think tank was. I hear it, and I kind of assumed I knew what it was. I was kind of right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good you know? it's a good term for something. Yeah, I was like, this, is this like a bunch of smart people sitting around? Think, thinking about smart stuff. Exactly. <laughs> That's kind of right. That's exactly what it is. It's <laughs> Ideally. Just, it's, like a, it's like a place where people sit around and think about things that eventually, hopefully, affects public policy in, in a positive way is what you're ultimately hoping for. Yeah, and by think, we don't mean if you went by a think tank, they would all just be sitting around going, hmm. I think it depends on the day of the week or if it's right after lunch. <laughs> like there's a ton of research mm-hmm. and study oh, I see and what stuff you mean. like that. They're not just pulling stuff out of thin air. No. No, that's the point of think tanks is they are groups of people, um, nonprofit organizations in the U.S., we should say. Yeah, which we'll get to the finer points of that. Mm-hmm. Um, who say, you know what? We see this problem in America and or the world or wherever. Great Britain has plenty. China has a bunch. And they say, how can we solve this problem? Let's get to it. We're going we're gonna to take this problem on and figure it out through yeah. pragmatic science and evidence-based research. We're going to come up with a solution to this problem. And then the next step is to get it out there to the public, to policymakers, to get people talking about it. Yeah. And then once enough people talk about it and there's a public debate over it, ideally, if it's a good idea, it will be adopted as public policy, and that problem will be solved in a, in a good way. Yeah, and that's the ideal function mm-hmm. of a an ideal think tank, which is to say it is nonpartisan, it is fact-based, and it doesn't have an agenda necessarily. But things have changed over the years, as we will see. Fairly recently, Chuck. Yeah, it seems like, and and think tanks can be very much slanted, but we'll, we'll get into all that. That's just sort of a long-winded setup. Okay, that was a good setup, though, man. Should we go back and check on our old buddy Plato? <laughs> <laughs> Socrates. Yeah, so Plato, his academy, the academy, was some people say was sort of the world's first think tank, which makes sense. Yeah, he would get dudes, and they would sit around in the garden, and and I would imagine drink wine. Sure. And talk smarts and philosophy and kind of, you know, like it was high-minded stuff for the day to sit around and think about sort of what was going on around them and how they could impact change. Yeah. Or thinking about the nature of reality or existence. Um, They once decided that knowledge was uncertain 
and life is essentially a craps game based on probability rather than absolute truth. If you step back and think about it, that is the basis of quantum mechanics. Could you imagine if they had access to LSD back then? I know. (laughs) I don't think it would have been too terribly different than this. Well, yeah, they they were sort of traveling down that road anyway. But that was, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive, some of the stuff they came up with. This is, again, you know, we did a skeptics uh, episode, skepticism episode. No, um, I'm sorry, not skepticism, stoicism. And remember, this is oh, like, yeah, sure. this is where this stuff was. All these different philosophies were all like kind of grew from this academy. So yeah, it, you can make a pretty good case that it was the world's first think tank. Yeah, it's a little. It's not the first modern think tank, but it, it qualifies in a lot of ways. No, there was one in 1831 in uh, Great Britain. Uh, the Duke of Wellington established what was called the Royal United Services Institution, mm-hmm. which studied like military science. Yeah, and then here in the U.S. in 1910. Uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Which studied the results of military science. Right, and that's still around. Uh, Carnegie, man, I mean, they they still have endowed many things. <laughs> yeah, they're well endowed. <laughs> they, they are very well endowed. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the Brookings Institution, which may be the most famous modern American think tank uh, to this day. This is the one you probably hear about the most. Uh, it was founded by Robert Brookings in 1916, mm-hmm. and uh, they had a lot of – I mean, they still have a lot of influence, but they had a great deal of influence um, kind of post-depression with FDR's New Deal, helped construct the New Deal, yep. helped construct the Marshall Plan after World War II. That was that was huge. Yeah, very huge. So both, like, both were. the For sure. The New Deal definitely was, but the Marshall Plan is uh, – there was a survey done of I think like 450 historians, and they – the number one most important thing that any government has done since um, World War II, between World War II and the 21st century, was the Marshall Plan. Like, it it not only, like, brought Europe back from World War II, yeah. it set Europe on a path away from communism. Yeah. Where if you're not into communism, that was a great positive benefit, right? Yeah. And the way it did that was— in two years, based on this economic plan, in two years, it got Europe, war ravaged, World War II ravaged Europe, back to production levels 25% higher than the production levels it was at before World War II. Wow. In two years. So it just went back to normal, plus 25% better. And Europe said, I kind of like this capitalism thing. And Western Europe went that way. Uh, I was kind of curious because Brookings... Uh, the Brookings Institution gets a lot of like left-leaning uh, criticism today, mm-hmm. and so I kind of wonder where all, that all came from. And uh, the article I read said that is a victory of uh, the conservative side mm-hmm. to have Brookings labeled liberal, uh, just from kind of pounding it in the press, even though its history and its member board throughout the history has not been liberal at all and has been filled from the top down over the years with uh, rank-and-file Republicans and conservatives from, like, the Reagan era on through Bush mm-hmm. 1 and 2. I, uh, oh, okay. So they've they've gotten it across as liberal so that liberals will swallow the stuff that Brookings is, is putting out there? No. I Why don't would they undermine their own think tank? Well, I, I don't think it's not their own think tank. It's not a conservative think tank. Well, it's centrist, like almost right down the middle from what right, I've seen. Right, but I think they want to advance their own— uh, 
with their conservative think tanks. They want to advance them, so they label Brookings as super liberal. I got you. So anything centrist is liberal. I think I that's got, the way it's I'll, going down. I bet that's what it is. Yeah. I can't remember who scored it, but somebody has a, a liberal score between zero and 100 mm-hmm. for think tanks, and Brookings scored like a 53 Right down the middle. Yeah. Like, apparently, as far as think tanks go, it's Mm -hmm. about as centrist as you possibly can get. Yeah, and they've been around for a long time. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yep. So, um, not just Brookings. Brookings is definitely one of the most famous around the world and has done quite a bit of stuff. But there's plenty of others. There's um, the RAND Corporation is a very famous think tank. Yeah. Which, did you know RAND is actually a... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, but it's supposed. it started out as R&D, like Research and Development, RAND mm-hmm. Corporation. And from what I understand, they've come up with the ideas for computers, the Internet, mm-hmm. uh, spy satellites, the space program, all that stuff that America did in the mid-20th century. Technologically? Yes. Yeah. The RAND Corporation, like, thinkers were the ones who came up with this stuff. Yeah, I think I knew some of that, and I don't, I don't think it— fully hit home that they were a think tank. Yeah. With a name like the Rand Corporation. Right. Sounds like just a corporation. But but they're they're like a think tank that's really specifically or was specifically zoned into America's technology pro- progression, I guess. Yeah, I mean a lot of think tanks can be specialized like that. Like some are very very much just concentrate on economics, mm-hmm. some concentrate on social uh, issues, in that case technology. And then I think some like uh, Brookings are sort of a little more broad. Yeah. They'll they'll take any case. <laughs> right. They'll take all comers. Yeah. So after World War II, um, like there were think tanks before, like you said, Brookings, Carnegie, um, the uh, Royal United Services Institute in the UK. There were like, there were think tanks prior to World War II. But after World War II, they really proliferated. And the reason they started was government was just kind of government. It was a... In the in the early twentieth century, it was just just this. It was a. It wasn't anything like you see it now. It wasn't this monolithic behemoth mm-hmm. that has its tendrils in every aspect of people's lives or anything. Yeah, it was a little too far the other way, where it didn't quite know what it was doing. So some of those early philanthropists like Carnegie um, and Brookings, they they endowed these think tanks to kind of help government out, to basically be like the research arm for government to help direct the best way for America to go. And that's how it started out. And then after World War II, when America had like all this cash and all this forward momentum, think tanks really popped up and and there were all these kind of competing and then sometimes harmonious um, voices from these think tanks to say, go this way, go this way, let's go this way. But they all had something in common and that was that they were staffed by very smart people mm-hmm. who did very deliberate, very good research, who produced policy positions that lawmakers could then take themselves mm-hmm. and go out to the people and say, see, this is what I'm talking about. Here's the data. Here's a soundbite for you to make you right. understand it. That's what think tanks did. And in a way, they, were, they very much were along the same track as lobby, lobbyists, which we did an episode on that. That was sure. pretty good, too. But think tanks stopped short of lobbying, allegedly. Yeah, because they kind of had to. Um, Starting in 1913, they were granted tax-exempt status, 
which is a very big deal because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of money involved in uh, many of these. I've been trying to get that for myself for years. <laughs> and you're right. It is a very big deal. The Church of Josh. Just get it going. That's, that's why I'm wearing this robe right now. <laughs> uh, in the 1950s, though, is when Congress really kind of, because they were tax exempt, had to get involved and say, hey, listen, you got to walk a line here You politically. You can't. Um, if you want to keep this tax exemption, and yeah. they all went, oh, yeah, we for sure do. <laughs> right. um, they said, you can't be partisan. It's got to be good information. You can't um, slant things a certain way or support officially support or endorse candidates. Um, you are here to educate with your objective work. And uh, that went along for a while. And mm-hmm. then we started getting think tanks that set out to do just that. Mm-hmm. Um, which they are called advo- uh, advocacy think tanks now, which I'm not sure how they managed to skirt, unless they changed the rules, skirt those rules and say, hey, we're going to be a conservative think tank or, or liberal think tank uh-huh. and still be tax exempt. The Do you know? The only thing that I can tell is that they are still technically producing a public good if, or if they believe that they're producing a public good even if they have conservative alignment or a liberal alignment, they're trying to move society along in a way that they think is good or for the betterment of society. That's what stuff you should know is. Dude, that's what I've been telling. I mean, could we government. be a think tank? No. All right. Absolutely not. I mean, think about it. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess we could. I think that there's a, I don't, okay, let me take that back. No, we absolutely couldn't. I'm going to go Because we that. can't be brought to you by... Me undies. At we the don't same have. Time. <laughs> we don't have time. I don't know. That's a good question. But we don't have. Yeah, you couldn't advertise and have like. You couldn't get advertiser money and be tax exempt. That's just yeah. Too like sweet. I doubt if the Brookings institutions papers have like Burger King coupons on them. You never know. They should. <laughs> so we'll get to why we can't be later on. Okay. But one of the things about about think tanks is. They're, they're, the reason they have a tax-exempt status is what they're doing is producing work that furthers the public good. Yeah. That's why they're supposed to have tax-exempt status. What you're pointing out is a really good thing to point out. Like, wait a minute. There's a lot of stuff here that that they could lose their tax-exempt status for. And if we fast forward to three or five years from now, I think we're going to start seeing them lose tax-exempt status. Um, they just haven't yet, I think is what it is. Yeah, because some of them flat out, like, it's so obvious when they come around, like uh, when the Democrats were beaten in 2000, they got together and they started uh, left-leaning thinkers got together and started the Center for American Progress, yeah. which is an economic organization. It says it's nonpartisan, but it literally says as a quote, their goal is to develop new policy ideas, okay. critique the policy that stems from conservative values. That raises a flag. Challenges uh, the media to cover the issues that truly matter and shape the national debate. Right. So it's they're, they're kind of flat out saying, like, we're out to prove, not just have an opinion about. Uh-huh. Maybe that's the distinction. Out to prove that conservative uh, economic values are bad for the country. Basically, yeah. Is that the difference, maybe? I, it's like I, here's our data. I honestly don't know, dude. It's not a bunch of op-eds thrown together. I, I, it's so so. No, it's not supposed to just be op-eds. It's supposed to be backed by data. Yeah, but but I mean, like Center for American Progress or like the Heritage Foundation or like Alec, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Oh, like these are like 
And we're going to do a whole episode just on Alec one day, okay? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. But they're like little, they're like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like karate training islands for <laughs> liberals or for conservatives or for um, rich billionaire followers. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, that's what they are. They're, they're, they come up with new ideas to push their agenda, and then they train activists to go out and get that message out to change people's minds, to get themselves on CNN or Fox News or whatever, right? and to shape the public discussion on on something. It has a lot of the contours of what think tanks used to have, yeah. but there's this whole other layer of like like sinew and gristle there that 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 think tanks aren't supposed to have. Should we take a break? Sure. All right, we'll take a break and we'll uh, talk a little bit more about the Heritage Foundation right after this. All right, 1980s, uh, the Heritage Foundation, which you briefly mentioned, uh, mentioned. Sure, that's the new mention. <laughs> uh, before, uh, before we broke, they came about. <laughs> we and broke said, a long time ago. <laughs> they said, "All right, it's 1980s. Uh, we got Ronald Reagan in there. He is uh, watching movies or asleep most of the time, so we have a good opportunity." <laughs> that's what they want you to think. <laughs> he has a good. Uh, did you see the numbers about his uh, movie watching? No. Oh man, it's great. What like as a how, movie fan, it's great. How many movies did he watch a day? It was a, though, he watched a lot of movies. And this is like back when they just had like reels, <laughs> right? Film strips. I guess they probably just you know cued the projector when wow. he had, he and Nancy wanted to watch a a good old fashioned western. Ooh, that was a good Reagan. starring me. Can you do the rest of the episode as Reagan? <laughs> no. Uh, so they came along and they said, "All right, Reagan's in in office. Here are our recommendations." What UPI would call a blueprint for grabbing the government by its frayed New Deal lapels and shaking out 48 years of liberal policy. And it came by way of 2,000, more than 2,000 recommendations. Yeah, and they tried to institute about two-thirds of them, right? Yeah, Reagan was like, great. Bring them on. Here's my, uh, thanks for the outline for what I should do. Right. (laughs) My plans. Yeah, so two-thirds, like you said, uh, during his two terms is what he tried to implement and then, of course, when Bill Clinton gets in there, the Progressive Policy Institute, um, I don't know if it was 2000 plus, Mm-mm. but they offered similar recommendations. And that's how it goes with think tanks right now. Yeah, because if you're a lawmaker, and again, we said this in the lobbying episode too, you're not necessarily like some smart, whip crack, sharp person. No, I think we've seen that played out. You can just like get people to vote for you. Yeah. On both sides of the aisle. This oh, isn't sure. just a crack at, like, you know, Trump or anything Oh, like no, no, that. no. I mean, like, on all up and down the House and Senate, right. like, you, you, don't you like have, to think they're all geniuses, but they're not. They're not, no. no. And you don't have to be smart to hold office. Um, you just have to get people to vote for you again, which is why think tanks have flourished for so long, why lobbyists have flourished for so long, because they're the ones who do the research and write the policy and say, oh, yeah. here you go. You want to go look smart? Here you go, buddy. We even like highlighted some sound bites for you to go say to people and get the get into the twenty four hour news cycle. Yeah, and that's one of the big roles that think tanks play today is by and and have you know especially since World War II is by going to policymakers and being like, here's your agenda, take or leave as much as you want, but all yeah. of this is backed by data. 
like it dovetails with what you want to do with the country. Uh-huh. And it is just gangbuster stuff. It's yeah. high quality, well-researched stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think there are still think tanks that only craft uh only do research and and present it and say do what you will with it. Mm-hmm. But those seem to be more and more gone by the wayside. Yeah, 2010 was a real watershed year. It feels like for think tanks. Yeah, like you mentioned, Alec, which we're going to cover in full. But I mean, they are they are a bill writing organization. They call them model bills. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when when you hear a, a senator or something said, you know, we crafted this le- legislation, right? What well, that probably means is an organization like Alec handed them the legislation mm-hmm. and said, here, you know, here it is if you want to use it. Right. And you probably should want to use it. That's so that is so Alec, I think, does in many ways qualify as a think tank. They're not a hundred percent standard think tank, but actually writing the law. Yeah. And for the the lawmaker to go and go into Congress and introduce it as their own bill, right? That's a little beyond what think tanks do. Think tanks more like write a paper mm-hmm. that says, "Here's this problem in America. Here are some ideas to solve it. Here's this research to back up those ideas. Go write a law based on it." What things like Alec does is take it a step further, but Alec still qualifies as a think tank, and Alec is part of a something called the um, State Policy Network. Yeah. Which apparently is there's one in every of, state uh, and Puerto tanks. Rico, yeah. and they're like a confederation of think tanks that basically sit around and figure out ways to sue local, state, and federal law lawmakers over laws to try to get laws overturned. Like they use the courts rather than the legislation, right. but um, it's still the stated goal is to affect public policy and turn it in one direction or another. Yeah, what was what was the website that you sent? SourceWatch? Yeah, SourceWatch called them, uh, called Alec a corporate bill mill. Right. So they're just churning out hundreds of bills a year. Mm-hmm. Not all, all of them get used, but many of them do. And it's just, I don't know, I don't think a lot of Americans realize that a lot of actual legislative policy is being written by... McDonald's. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I can't wait to do the Alec one. We're both going to be... Well, our cars are going to blow up right after, <laughs> but by God, we're going to get that episode. Huh? Maybe we should make that our like last episode in the year, whatever. What's twenty in years the from now? Year two thousand. <laughs> no, that was eighteen years ago. Oh, okay. I used to love that bit though. Yeah, that was okay. so good. Um, all right, so we got to talk about money here. Got it. Because this, uh, they are not, um. The independent, most times these days, they're not the independent organizations that you think they are. Uh, they used to be funded by these endowments and um, more and more it's it's corporations, large businesses. Sometimes private individuals, of course, will give. And sometimes it's a, a great workaround for campaign finance laws instead of directing you know, you know, tens of millions of dollars like you can't do to a campaign. Mm-hmm. You can throw it in a think tank. That will probably get a better result anyway. That's new. The time was it used to be like a rich, in my day, <laughs> right? A rich philanthropist would say, uh, "I hate poverty and the effects it has on Americans. Go figure this out. I'm going to fund a think tank, mm-hmm. and that's what you're dedicated to. I like just go make that happen. And that's what think tanks were originally born from, and that's largely the 
the only kind of oversight they worked under is they were trying to end poverty or they were trying to work against communism, like these huge, haughty goals. Yeah. Now they're being micromanaged. That's one thing that's happening to them. Yeah, and the idea that the uh, these think tanks are not swayed or influenced or affected by their donors is not true. And the sort of the biggest problem going is that now you have legislation being drawn up by think tanks because corporations are paying money to get research that uh, looks – like it's in their favor. Yeah. So, so one of the problems is the like a, there's not as many philanthropists who are just endowing think tanks with no strings attached anymore. There are plenty of philanthropists out there still. Yeah. That are are funding think tanks, but their donations are directed. They're results oriented. They're very technocratic, right? They want to see bang for their buck. Whereas before, it was just like to make America a better place. And that was it. There wasn't a lot of like um, um, nobody's feet were being held to the fire, you know. Now it's like we want you to further this specific agenda, which is um, uh, we want to make sure that St. Louis's children, there's not a single one malnourished any longer. Right. Which is great. It's a great goal. There's nothing wrong with that goal. Yeah. But it's just so very narrowed and tailored and there's ways that you can hold the think tank accountable, Mm -hmm. which is good in one hand, but it's also basically the introduction of like a corporate management to think tanks, which that's not really how they were originally formed. And it's having a weird effect on them. So think tanks are starting to say, all right, thank you for this money. We'll go save the children of St. Louis. But, and by the way, shout out to St. Louis. That was a great show that one time. What a cool town. Um, so, again, saving the children of St. Louis, good stuff. Mm-hmm. But we've got all this other stuff we want to do, too. So to keep that going, we're going to have to also go find sources elsewhere. Right. And, again, you can find them from other other people, but one of the places they're finding them from is corporations. And that is having a big negative impact on think tanks right now. Yeah, and it goes both ways. Uh, in the past, you know, eight or ten years, conservative billionaires have uh, – it says that here they funneled $120 million to about 100 groups and think tanks uh, to do things like discredit climate change science. Um, Which, I mean, dude. I know. The <laughs> the Koch brothers and ExxonMobil specifically yeah. funded a couple of think tanks called Atlas uh, Economic Research Foundation and the International Policy Network to basically, to basically question the science behind climate change to further fossil fuel interests, which is, see you guys in hell. For that one. <laughs> like, that, what a crummy legacy to leave yeah. on Earth. Just to make a few extra bucks. Psh, forget future generations. They can all burn. Yeah. Forget all the uh, endangered species that are on the brink of extinction that are, oh, wait, no, they're now extinct. Um, it doesn't matter because we made a few extra billion dollars. Yeah. That's that's despicable. Well, what? Uh, it's funny. I just watched the movie Chinatown for a movie crush episode. And there's that, you ever seen that? Yeah. You know, mo- a lot of that movie is about, uh, it was originally titled water and power, you know, cause yeah. it's about, you know, this weird, uh, political situation in Los Angeles in the 1930s where they were diverting water to the Valley, mm-hmm. which was a desert and all these rich fat cats that were getting the water diverted. There were buying up land in the Valley, like hundreds of thousands of acres. Right. 
because they knew it was going to be a lush green valley soon. Right. So all that really happened in L.A. Chinatown was based on that. But there's that great scene when uh, Jack Nicholson is Jake uh, Giddes. Uh, confronts John Houston mm-hmm. about, you know, he's the big bad guy, mm-hmm. Noah Cross, and he says, you know, how much money do you need? How much, how many more things can you buy or this or that? And he says, what are you uh, trying to secure? And he looked at him and he said, the future, Mr. Giddis. Hmm. And that's what it is. They're, they're not after more billions to buy more planes and a bigger house. Right. They're trying to leave, that they that's what they want out of their legacy, is they're trying to affect the future. And they, in their own specific way. Right. But they're affecting the future in the worst way possible. According to us. And the problem but is— But not according to them. Sure. You know? But if you if you polled enough people and just asked them plainly, if you took money and billionaires and power and, sure. and all that out of it, do you want a better future for humanity and for Earth Yeah, 100 years from now? I would guess the majority of people would say yes. And if you can say, well, these guys are actually doing the opposite of ensuring that right, right now, how do you feel about that? Most people would say, I don't feel so great about that. Yeah. The problem is, is most people would also follow up with, but what can we do? Right. They're, but, they're rich. And yeah. that's a great point. Let what me, what ho- can you do? Let me hop back on Facebook and find a goat video. Right. That's when the hopelessness sets in. And that's what's causing the paralysis in our, our world right now is hopelessness. <laughs> that's that's not grim at all, is it? Uh, uh, by the way, everybody, be sure to listen to my uh, new podcast, uh, "The End of the World" with Josh Clark. It's yeah, a, it's a really uplifting. Coming very soon. Yeah, coming this fall sometime, eventually. Just stock up on your uh, happy pills. <laughs> right. uh, so, in 2013, however, on the other side, uh, left-leaning weekly magazine, The Nation, um, revealed the positions of the left-leaning Center for American Progress and other think tanks in D.C. are shaped by interest of their donors. So it happens on both sides of the aisle, for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's an equal opportunity screwing that the world is getting from lobbying, from think tanks, from from wealthy interests. Like, it's, right. it's both, both sides, yeah. So they're and effectively unregistered lobbyist organizations now to a large degree. Right. And because they're uh, tax-exempt, they're not— obligated to release financial statements or reveal their donors. Yeah. So I'm surprised it took that long for people to be like, wait a minute, we can really take advantage here. So let's let's take another break and then we'll get we'll it will spell out what the advantages are of hiring a think tank. All right, Chuck, we're back. I'm a little warm under the collar. I feel like we should mention this thing uh, with the Walton Family Foundation quickly because that's interesting. I think this is a great example of what a, a think tank can do these days. Yeah, it's um, obviously the the Sam Walton family of Walmart fame. Uh, they fund a lot of conservative think tanks. I think most people know that. Um, but then they also fund funded one uh, and think tanks backed by uh, Barack Obama, when it came to the Affordable Health Care Act, mm-hmm. and you're like, wait a minute, why would they do something like that if they're a conservative family supporting conservative causes? Mm-hmm. Then you do a little poking around, and it turns out 
that uh, critics would say that um, the health care bill that forced employers to pay for their employees' health care tax, Walmart was like, this is great because we can afford to do this, but our mom-and-pop competitors can't. Right. So we're actually going to try and get this pushed through, <laughs> even though at its face it doesn't quite make a lot of sense. It like, makes sense to them. Like why would Walmart take on the cost of their, their employees' health care? Because they know that they can. Like, go back to sleep, everybody. Yeah. Stop asking questions. It's really interesting. It is. It's fascinating. But that's one thing you can do is donate to a think tank that's furthering your agenda. And because think tanks are now largely agenda-driven, there's a lot of think tanks out there that can help you out. And there's a, a new thing that's happening with think tanks these days is they're starting to solicit corporate donations. And one of the saddest stories is the story of the Brookings Institution, the most centrist think tank that has put out the Marshall Plan mm-hmm. that helped figure out the New Deal yeah. and it's and how it addressed the Depression. Like, has done all this amazing stuff. Is now they hired a lobbyist for their strategic development chief and they're now soliciting corporate donations left and right. Yeah. And they're basically, this is this is what you can get. Like if you hire a think tanker, I'm sorry, you're, you're not supposed to say hire. If you enter into a partnership mm-hmm. or donate to a think tank and you're, you're a corporation or a very wealthy person, you, what the think tank will do is they will basically get your ideas out there. They will deploy. So first of all, Let's say there's this really great uh, New York Times article about the, um, what was the name of that company? The Lennar Corporation. Okay. They they wanted to build in San Francisco. They wanted to redevelop the site in San Francisco, which mm-hmm. whatever. The, apparently there was pushback on it or they were getting some sort of pushback from the residents of San Francisco. So I guess the Brookings Institution went to them and said, hey, we've got some ideas for you. We can support this as basically like a great idea for cities of the future. And and we're going to lend the credibility of our experts in our think tank to your project yeah. and make it like a champion kind of thing, like a, a, a blue type, an archetype for how to further cities in America. Your development project, it's a, they're, they're home builders. Yeah. But, but with Brookings Institution behind it, right. there was a veneer of something bigger than building homes. Yeah, yeah. Bigger than redeveloping. Something about the future yeah. and progress. And Brookings, like, went to them. And in exchange for 400 grand, Brookings, like, added this credibility to it, got talking heads out there on the news to talk up this development and, like, what it meant for the future. And um, one of the other things they did and can do is they can set up summits, conferences on cities of the future yeah. and get the home builders and lawmakers into the same room to hang out together. And so that's lobbying. Sure. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. That is lobbying, and they were doing it on behalf of a specific corporation. There should be no tax exemption whatsoever any longer. Yeah. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. If you're a taxpayer, you are funding that. Yeah. By, by through these tax exemptions, because we foot the bill for tax deductions. Sure. So if a single corporation's interests are being served, even if society in general is benefiting in some way, that's too much of a slippery slope that breaks the um, tax exemption status and that, that, that should go away. And that sadly is, is apparently 
where Brookings, the direction Brookings is going. Yeah. And, and they, others too, I should say. Oh, sure, sure. Um, even the ones that aren't maybe as outright uh, – aren't as bald-faced about this stuff. Um, Like, a lot of scholars say that, you know, bought and paid for research is sort of the exception still. Mm -hmm. But even even so, there's still places where, you know, you may not, um, you may may not push out certain research if you think it might piss off your boss. Yeah, which is the same thing. Or sort of self-censor yourself Mm -hmm. if you think like, oh, man, I don't know, like we're getting donations now, like this might not please them. It might make them look bad, so I probably should just avoid this conclusion. Yeah, so maybe not of like completely inventing a study or something, but mm-hmm. being very selective in what you choose to research or how you research it or what you release. Sure. Is, uh, it's, you know, it's another version of the same thing. It, it totally is. And one of, uh, one of the other things that they've been found to do, a lot of think tanks um, or one of the new things that think tanks do is they will circulate drafts before there's a final draft to donors. Like, what do you think about this? And sometimes their opinions yeah. will be incorporated into the final draft. Mm-hmm. That is the antithesis of the spirit of think tanks and what they were originally meant to do. They were supposed to be like, here's the facts. Right. Here's the research to back it up. It is what it is. We think you can apply it to make the world right. better in this way. <laughs> yeah. Not what. Well, you know, what do you guys think? Does this does this jibe with the kind of sinks you've selected for this redevelopment? Yeah. Because we can change this part to to jibe with the sinks you chose. Right. You know, that's just not what it's supposed to be. And the reason that think tanks are doing this is they are in um, existential danger through the death of expertise. That I remember I talked about in the elimination diet episode. Yeah. The problem is it's not like America just said, we're sick of expertise. We're we're tired of you experts. Like, you're always right, and we're tired of hearing yeah. you're always right. People got tired of being lied to and misled and misinformed yeah. and manipulated, and they finally said, you know what? Experts, that's enough. Enough of you are full of it. Enough of you have let your credibility be co-opted. Yeah. We're just not going to listen to any of you anymore because we don't know who to trust and the experts brought about their the the death of expertise themselves in large part. Yeah, and there's another uh, – there was this article from the Washington Post called Are Think Tanks Obsolete, which sort of argues along those lines um, about – and also incorporates the internet and the length of like a research cycle. Mm-hmm. Like with the internet and Twitter and Facebook and things like TED Talks, uh, there's a guy, uh, Donald Abelson, a professor at University of Western Ontario, wrote a book called Do Think Tanks Matter where – his conclusion basically is that the marketplace of ideas, he says, has become congested and you don't have time anymore yeah. to do a 12-month research proposal uh, to come to the following conclusions when 100 TED Talks over that 12 months will be published. Mm-hmm. Not picking on TED Talks are great. No, it's a good example, though. But you can push out a TED Talk. You can push out uh, a Facebook Live video as, mm-hmm. as an economist right. and have a lot of sway. You can uh, – they mention in here the uh, in the article about uh, vaccines. Yeah. For instance, uh, when as far as it goes with the vaccines, the Rand Corporation, uh, one of the largest think tanks that we already mentioned, they did like a very thorough deep dive in research uh, debunking the notion that vaccines cause autism – and it took a long time, but you can get on uh, Facebook and go to a group called Educate Before You Vaccinate and watch videos by non-experts, and people are swayed these days by this stuff. Yeah. Like, why wait 
you know, this site, the news cycle is so shortened. Right. You can't wait for a long deep dive research paper to come out with some abstract summary that no one reads anyway. And apparently now they're, you know, they're written in such a way where they will just say, uh, re- abstract summary, this stinks. <laughs> right. We shouldn't do it. Yeah. You know, they become so opinionated. I don't know, man. It's just, it's it's depressing to think that Facebook and Twitter have outsized a think tank as far as they definitely have influence. Yeah. And YouTube and basically anything that gives a voice to the average person, which on the one hand is really cool and great. Sort of democratizes it in a way, but, but, but in the worst way at times. It, but the, it's tied into this death of expertise in in a really toxic manner. You know what I'm saying? Like the two that that democratization of like a, a like giving everybody like a, a mouthpiece is not in and of itself like a bad thing but when since it coincided with the loss in trust in experts and expertise yeah that's what where the problem came from and that was the reason why we couldn't be a think tank sadly we could be a think tank now yeah but we couldn't be a bona fide think tank because chuck we don't have enough time on any given week to do so much thorough um, primary source research oh, yeah. into stuff. If we do, if we release one of these every couple months, sure, we could be like a real think tank, but it wouldn't be nearly as fun. Six episodes a year. Yeah. People would love that. Yeah, they'd love it. <laughs> you got anything else? Nope. I guess I don't either. Sorry for going off, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm sure <laughs> I'll get some email, but whatevs is worth it. Uh, if you want to know more about think tanks, well, I don't know. Go on the internet and look up some think tanks and see if there's any that you agree with. A lot of them have like daily interpretations of news that kind of go through their lens. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a way to keep up with things. Sure. Uh, and you can also read this uh, this article on how stuff works. It's not a think tank called How Think Tanks Work. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this a ballpoint pen addiction. Or just pen addiction. Uh, hey, guys, been listening for a couple of months or so. New listener. Uh, you are my first foray into podcasts. I just really enjoy listening to you two. Welcome. I saw the Ballpoint Pen podcast, and I could not pass it up. I have a bit of a pen problem, you see. I own many, many pens, especially the gel-type ink rollerball pens. Way to go. Uh, you got taken to task by quite a few people who were just like, Josh Clark, heresy. Gel pens? Yeah. <laughs> There are a lot of, I guess, uh, traditionalists who boo-poo that. I think they're great. I got a lot of support for that one, too. Agreed. We got a lot of pin recommendations. It was good to see. Yeah. Uh, And here's another one. Uh, I own many, many pins, especially the gel ink rollerball pins. I also own a collection of Sharpies Mm -hmm. in various tip widths and colors. Oh, wow. I probably have a couple of gallon-sized Ziploc bags worth. Uh, You mentioned the way certain pins write on certain types of paper. I think it's probably... The rollerball gel pens that work best on the thermal paper mm. that they use in most restaurants. Remember I was talking about signing mm-hmm. the check? I think that's what she's talking we about. We still never found out what that thing's called. Thermal paper. No, no, no. The thing that the check comes out in. The little portfolio. The clamshell. Someone actually <laughs> sent it. Did you see that? Yeah. This great couple sent in a picture of a clamshell check yep. delivery system. Yeah. <laughs> what are they called? I don't know. Check caddy? We're going we're gonna to name them clamshells now. All right. That's the new name for him. Uh, so I have a favorite pin, though, guys. I buy them by the box. Uh, it's the Pilot V-Ball B-Green pin, the .5 millimeter. Okay. I love the way they feel when they write. I can't go back to ballpoint pins. 
I use them at work. I carry at least three in my bag, and I draw and doodle with them. Using them on a newsprint pad is my favorite thing when doing word art. Nice. Uh, sorry for the ramble, guys. Have a great day. That is from Davini M. Barry. Davini Barry? Davini M. Barry. M. Barry. I wasn't going, mm, Barry. Okay. Well, I didn't know if Davini's middle initial was M or if I was mishearing you and Davini and Barry. It's actually right. Davina, excuse me. Davina M. Barry. If I would have said Davina and Barry, that would have been much more clear. Or Embury. It might be Davina Embury. We'll just say Davina. Or Davina. Oh, God. How about D E? <laughs> Thanks, D E. It's D I. Ma! <laughs> Well, at any rate, we're glad that you started listening to us. We appreciate it, and thanks for taking the time to let us know about the your pen addiction. Um, totally fine with us. Uh, if you want to let us know about something you're super into, you can hang out with us on social meds. You can go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and find all of our social media links. You can also send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.